Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Hi, everyone. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, so thanks for having me out. Uh, my students this morning uh, told me that I should make a whooping noise or something. But I told them I went to Notre Dame, so <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so you guys invited me here to talk about um, the question of whether there's goodness without God, um, and specifically Aquinas and the problem of so-called pagan virtue. Um, pagan is, is kind of a term of art that, ha- that people have used to describe this controversy. It's not really a, it's not really a well-defined term, right? Um, but for our purposes, we're, what we're really talking about is the question of um, the kind of goodness that a non-Christian, non-believer, someone outside um, Christian belief can have. And there have been different views about this uh, in the history of Christianity, right? So St. Augustine is is famous, right, for saying that uh, the apparent virtues of the pagans are no more than splendid vices, right, by which is meant that any what are apparently good acts are really kind of motivated only by pride or, or kind of uh, the desire to put yourself forward. Um, now, Augustine apparently actually never did say that the virtues of the pagans were splendid vices. Nobody can find the place where he said it. Uh, but he, he, he certainly, um, he certainly uh, believed in the spirit of that assertion. There's, there's no denying that, okay? Um, and that claim has given uh, rise to a lot of controversy uh, because it seems to assert that anything a non-believer does is necessarily sinful. And some Christians say, yep, that's right. And other Christians say, no, that's not right. Um, you can see why someone would think that at acts of non-believers are necessarily sinful. Um, after all, Christians believe that all morally perfect acts are motivated by supernatural love for God. And they believe that the very ability to have such a motive is impossible without God's saving grace, which is itself a gift for God, a gift from God. So you might naturally conclude that if non-Christians don't act out of love for God, then their acts must be sinful. And some think that that's the correct interpretation of Paul's claim in Romans 14.23, that all that is not of faith is sin. Um, So uh, on one hand, that seems like a natural interpretation, right? But on the other hand, that can seem a little bit harsh, right? 
Um, because it, it seems to require us to believe that many of the actions we have historically admired and the actions that we admire in others uh, are, are sinful, right? So it, it requires us to think that what um, the Spartans and their king did at Thermopylae, right, when they laid down their lives to save all of Greece um, from the Persian hordes was sinful. It requires us to believe that Socrates was sinning when he died for truth. It requires us to believe that our atheist neighbor is sinning when she gets up and shovels our walk for us so that we don't slip, right? Um, and, th and that seems a little bit harsh, right? Um, it seems like we could agree that um, such people probably aren't acting out of uh, love for God, but the question is whether the only alternative is to say, yes, those acts are sinful, right? They're, um, and, and the question is whether or not there's some kind of middle ground, okay? The possibility of that middle ground, um, acts that are not motivated by love for God, but are also not evil, right, um, is what I'm going to be talking about tonight, and I'm going to be describing one way of arguing for that middle ground, okay? It's the middle ground offered um, by, surprise, surprise, Thomas Aquinas here at the Thomistic Institute. Um, and so I'm going to argue that Thomas Aquinas believes that although true moral perfection is impossible apart from grace, it is still possible for non-Christians to avoid sin in some of their acts and even to develop genuinely good habits. The key to establishing the middle ground, right, is establishing the possibility of acts that are neither sinful on the one hand or motivated by supernatural love for God on the other. So I'm going to start with an example that intuitively seems like it could fall into that middle ground and then show how Aquinas' notion of the, what he calls the good of nature, okay, which I'm going to explain. I realize that's a complicated sounding term, um, helps us explain that intuition. Um, so that's where I'm going to start, but that's going to get us into deeper problems. Because even if we can we concede that the non-believer can perform good acts here and there, right? Um, that's not yet the uh, the claim that the non-believer can perform such actions regularly or habitually, right? Um, and any attempt to attribute that kind of goodness uh, has to be able to accommodate the Christian notion of original sin. Okay, so. After explaining Aquinas' notion of the good of nature and why he thinks there is goodness available to non-Christians, I'm going to explain three things, right? I'm going to explain um, why he thinks we can perform such actions without grace. I'm going to explain what it would mean to cultivate the ability to perform these actions habitually. And then I'm going to talk about original sin. After I do all of that, then I'm going to return to Christianity Right, and talk about why Aquinas believes that even someone who successfully cultivates the ability to do good acts still needs God's grace to get into heaven. Okay? So that's where we're going. Now I'm going to kind of retreat and just spend some time talking about an example um, and Aquinas' notion of the good of nature. Okay? And the example I want to talk about is what happened at Thermopylae. Right? Those of you who have seen the movie 300, know what happened at Thermopylae. Um, but if you don't, I'll give you a little recap. So 480 years before the birth of Christ, 7,000 Spartans and their Greek allies defended a narrow pass 
against 100,000 Persian invaders at a place called Thermopylae. The Spartans knew they could not hold their pass for very long, but they also knew that if they held the pass long enough, they could give the Greek Navy time to assemble and fight off invaders and thus possibly save the lives of their families and countrymen. They held the pass for a few days, and it when it was clear that they couldn't hold the pass any longer, the Spartan king, Leonidas, dismissed his forces, and he and a small group of his men, 300 according to legend, not 300, like, probably more like 2,000, stayed behind and continued to block the Persian advance while the rest of the Greek forces retreated to safety. Leonidas and his men, as they knew they would be, were overwhelmed and to a man they were killed by the Persians. But by their sacrifice, they saved not only their comrades, but also all of Greece. For centuries, we've praised that sacrifice. If you go to Greece, you will see a, a, a plaque, right, erected by the ancient Greeks that still stands today, right, honoring the sacrifice of these men who gave, who knowingly went to their deaths to save their families and their country. And there are books and movies about it, of course. But the question that I want to raise and the question I want to talk about is how do we evaluate what Leonidas and his men did, right? Should we agree that, should we agree that even if they did a good thing, they were necessarily just motivated by pride or the desire for honor or, or some, some kind of base motive? Or should we say no, like at least some of them did something that was genuinely good? Um, it's probably true that at least some of the Spartans were acting out of pride, right? Or because they were thinking about how others might perceive them or something like that. That's different than saying all of them did, right? Um, it seems like we would want to say that at least some of those people were doing something genuinely good for a genuinely good reason. Now, some scholars, most notably Peter Abelard, have argued that since God can bestow his grace where he wills, he can also bestow it on pagans. And so he would say that some of the Spartans um, did good acts because unbeknownst even to themselves, they were Christians, right? They had received God's saving grace and were therefore capable of um, acts ordered to the love of God. That seems like overkill a little bit though, right? It seems like that's going a bit too far. Couldn't at least some of the Spartans have been motivated neither by pride or glory or supernatural love for God, but just some genuinely good desire? Couldn't they have, some of them have just said, I need to stand here and defend this past to the death because it's the right thing to do? Couldn't they have just stopped there? Like, couldn't that have been uh, their motive? Or I need to stand and defend this, this past because I need to protect my family. Right, um, And in a number of places, but most tellingly in his commentary on Paul's claim that all that is not of faith is sin, Aquinas indicates that he thinks something like this is the case. So in his commentary on Paul's claim in Romans 14.23, that all that is not of faith is sin, Aquinas makes a number of important distinctions. First, Aquinas distinguishes the believer's relation to good from the unbeliever's relation to evil. The former, says Aquinas, is all or nothing, 
in a way the latter is not. In, the one, in one who has living faith, says Aquinas, there is nothing of condemnation. There is no evil. But, Aquinas continues, the unbeliever's relation to evil is not the same as the believer's relation to good. That is to say, we can't conclude that just because there is evil in unbelief, there is nothing good in the unbeliever. For even in the unbeliever, right, and this is the phrase that we're going to harp on for a while, even in the unbeliever, says Aquinas, there is still the good of nature. This means, says Aquinas, that the unbeliever does not necessarily refer everything he does to an evil end. He has the capacity to refer his acts to something good, the good of nature. Since he has not received God's saving grace, he will be incapable of perfectly good motives, and his acts will fall short of the paradigm of Christian goodness. But, says Aquinas, they will also not necessarily be evil. Okay, so clearly the claim, the key thing here is this notion of the good of nature, right? This notion that even unbelievers can still act in accord with what Aquinas calls the good of nature, okay? So I want to talk about um, what that means. And Aquinas, like Augustine, right? This is something Aquinas and Augustine are in perfect agreement about. Aquinas believes that our very creation is a gift, right? The very fact that God created us was a gift, And we, as human beings, do something genuinely good when we make the most of the gift of our creation. So it should come as no surprise that Aquinas, following Aristotle, sees a deep connection between what a thing is, its nature, and our assessment of whether any individual thing is good or not. The general idea is relatively simple, right? The general idea is when we say what something is, we're not just describing it, we're also indicating a standard that that thing ought to meet. Um, So I know that's a little complicated, so here are some examples, right? Um, I suspect all of you in this room have used the word good today, right? Probably, right? You might have said that the Chick-fil-A smelled good, right? or that, you know, the, the test was bad, right? right? You've, you've used words like that. Um, what do you mean when you say that? Right? What do you mean when you say Chick-fil-A, the Chick-fil-A is good, right? It seems pretty clear that when you say that, you mean that there is something a chicken sandwich is supposed to be, right? And the good chicken sandwich measures up to what chicken sandwiches are supposed to be right? Um, Or when you say that the pizza in the cafeteria is bad, right? You mean there's something pizza is supposed to be, and the stuff in the cafeteria is not living up to that, right? So you're, you're kind of presupposing an idea of what something ought to be when you use the word good and bad throughout the day, right? You're kind of, you, and if you couldn't, we wouldn't really know what you were talking about. And things in the world, right, pizza, of course, right, that's a little subjective. Maybe chicken sandwiches are too. Chick-fil-A has really long lines, though. So, um, but things we encounter in the world have standards that they meet or fail to meet too, right? If you grew uh, 
a garden over the summer, right? You would might remember talking about your tomatoes, right? And if you said that your tomatoes were really good, you probably meant they measured up to what, your, what tomatoes were supposed to be, right? Um, the standards that are present in the things we encounter in the world, Aquinas says, are in them by nature, right? Things have natures, and nature provides them with a kind of standard that they ought to live up to, okay? So, for instance, consider what we mean when we say that someone has good eyes, right? We mean that there are things that eyes do, right? Recognize objects, distinguish things far away, uh, read things that are up close. Um, there are things that eyes do. Not all eyes are capable of doing those things equally well, right? So I'm getting older, I, I can't see things very close up anymore, right? Not all eyes do that. When we say that someone has good eyes, we mean that their eyes do the things that eyes are supposed to do in a particularly excellent way. Bad eyes are going to fall short. Okay, and I think that's just a deeply intuitive way of using the words good and bad, right? And I think if you examine the ways that you've used the word good so far today, that's probably going to be true, right? That's, it's probably going to turn out that those are the kinds of things that you meant. When we use the word good and bad, we're assuming a standard and we're making a judgment about whether the thing in question meets the standard, okay? So if we accept the idea that a thing's nature, what it is, right, and its goodness are connected in that way, then it follows that before we can make a judgment about whether a human being is good or bad, we need an account of what human beings are, right? Of what things human beings are supposed to do, right? That, and what only human beings are supposed to do. And the answer to this has seemed fairly clear to philosophers throughout history, right? Only human beings are capable of rational activity only we are capable of using our reason to deliberate about the best way to live our lives. Although we have desires and needs and impulses, just like any other animal, we, unlike other animals, are not simply bound to follow where our desires lead. We have the capacity to think and to use our reason and to train our desires. And if we come to the rational realization um, that we ought to exercise, for instance, we can... Um, not only resist our desire not to exercise, but re even retrain our desires. So that becomes something that we want to do. Okay, so we're kind of edging now in given this account of human nature, right? Human beings are beings that are capable of rational activity. We're kind of edging towards an account of what the human good is, right? It would be the a good human being is going to be someone who performs the activity unique to human beings, rational activity, in an excellent way. Okay, so now I'm going to come back to Leonidas, right? I think this helps explain why we admire Leonidas, right? A human action is good when it exhibits what is most special and unique about human beings, right? When it exhibits our capacity to make ourselves act in the way we know is right. If this is what good human action is, right, 
the sacrifice the Spartans made at Thermopylae certainly seems like it fits the bill. To sacrifice one's life for a good that one correctly recognizes to be higher and greater than oneself, and to do so willingly, even gladly, this is something only human beings can do, right? And only a special kind of human being at that, right? Even if we admire it, I think most of us are probably at least skeptical about whether we would be able to to be the ones who made that kind of sacrifice, right? Um, Leonidas and his men, at least in this isolated instance, seem to have met and exceeded the standard of good human action, okay? Um, so, and I, I think this is what Aquinas is talking about, right? Um, I'm gonna, when he, when he talks about the good of nature, okay? And, and when he says that even non-believers can exhibit goodness in their actions. Okay, that's one action, right? So all we have now is that according to Aquinas, um, there's at least a few actions where even non-believers can act well, okay? Um, we haven't yet talked about any kind of ability to do that consistently yet, okay? So, so far I've described Aquinas' assertion that the pagan can avoid sin when he acts in keeping with the good of nature, as an assertion that the pagan avoids sin when he acts in a way that fulfills the gift God gives him in creating him, when he acts in a way that exhibits the specialness of his rational human nature. But even if we accept this, a number of things require explaining. First, even if we agree that good human action is one that exhibits the excellence of reason, how do we know what right reason is? Right? How do we know in a given situation what is required of us? And even if we occasionally manage to get it right, as Leonidas and his men seem to have done, it seems like really fulfilling the gift of our creation, really being a good person, would mean that we acted in accord with right reason, that we got it right all the time, right? That we acted in a way that exhibited the best that human beings are capable of again and again and again, reliably, right, over the course of a life. And then finally, we haven't said anything at all about the problem of original sin. Okay, so I'm going to address each of those points in turn, okay? Um, how do we, I'm going to, so I'm going to start with the question of how we know what acts are in accord with right reason and what acts aren't. Aquinas thinks that even pagans can make good use of the gift of their rational human nature because he believes that doing so requires only what God already gives us when he creates us. Although Aquinas does not believe anyone is naturally virtuous, he does believe that all human beings are created with the capacity to become virtuous. Aquinas believes that God creates man with a basic orientation to and desire for the good of reason. To put the same point differently, God creates man with a natural moral compass that points us toward the fulfillment of our rational human nature. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining how he thinks that direction works. Um, <clears throat> So I've been talking, I've mentioned a few times now this notion of the good of reason 
I've claimed that virtue enables us to act in accord with right reason. And that's true as far as it goes, right? It's just good, solid Aristotle. You know, Aquinas makes a lot of use of Aristotle. Um, but putting, it, putting things that way makes it seem a little bit um, as if being a good person is primarily like a mental activity. Like I just sit down and think hard, right? And then I just figure out the right thing to do. Um, and that would not be an accurate characterization of what Aquinas or even Aristotle thinks. We're rational, and our rationality sets us apart. But we're rational animals, not disembodied minds. And our animality is as important a part of the equation as our rationality. When Aquinas describes our natural order to the good of reason, he mentions both our animality and our rationality. We can't choose any action, says Aquinas, except insofar as we perceive it to be good in some way. And it is for this reason that he asserts that we all know as self-evident the first fundamental inviable principle of the natural law, do good and avoid evil. But how do we know what good is, right? It seems like we're just back at the same question, right? Do good, fine, what's good? For clarity on what good is, Aquinas looks to what we naturally recognize as good. What we naturally recognize as good tends to, to stem from inclinations, desires, deep-rooted desires that we naturally have thanks to what we are. Okay. Like all living things, right, we naturally are inclined to preserve ourselves in being, to stay alive, right? And because we are naturally inclined to preserve our lives, our reason recognizes that as a good. Like other sentient beings, we're naturally inclined to perpetuate the species and educate our young. And we rec our reason recognizes that as good. Like other rational beings, well, <laughs> like, like, because we are rational beings, we are naturally inclined to seek to know the truth about God and live in society, right? And because we naturally desire those things, our reason recognizes it as good. So thanks to the kind of thing we are, we naturally recognize certain inclinations that we have as good and choice-worthy and worthy of pursuit, but those things aren't just pursued willy-nilly, right? Any and all of those things, Aquinas thinks, have to be pursued in a rational way, right? Life is good, but life is not to be pursued at all costs. It might sometimes make sense, as in the case of Leonidas, to risk your life for the sake of your family or your society. The ability to deliberate well about how to pursue the things we naturally recognize as good like the ability to act on what we ultimately decide, is something that has to be cultivated. But this, too, is something that Aquinas thinks even pagans make progress in. This is not to say that Aquinas thinks that we just sit around and figure out how to be good people all by ourselves. Aquinas thinks, for instance, that we are in principle capable of arriving at the truths of mathematics on our own. Right? And we clearly are. Some people seem to have done so. Most of us did not, right? Aquinas' point is that in mathematics, as in natural moral reasoning, our reason can arrive at the correct conclusion on its own. 
a teacher helps that process, right? A teacher helps our reason move from one step to the next. And a parent helps a child understand why stealing is wrong. But seeing that stealing is wrong is something that any person, insofar as they are a person, Aquinas thinks, is naturally capable of doing. Simply because of the kind of thing we are, the kind of things that we naturally recognize as good, we are capable of understanding the wrongness of murder, the wrongness of theft, right, and a host of other things. Cain suffered all the ill effects of his parents' fall from grace, but he still knew he was doing something wrong when he killed Abel, right? Okay. Um, so Aquinas thinks that even, um, even pagans are capable of acquiring, not just acting rightly, but acting rightly with a certain, a certain degree of consistency, okay? Um, in fact, Aquinas goes so far as to claim that a pagan can, quote, acquire a habit of virtue through which he may abstain from evil in the majority of cases, and chiefly in matters most opposed to reason. So I'm going to talk a little bit about habits and what Aquinas means when he says that we can all cultivate genuinely good habits. So we've seen that Aquinas thinks that man's very rational nature gives him the capacity to recognize acts that are in accord with reason. But Aquinas also thinks that that capacity needs cultivation, right? We can recognize things that are most glaringly wrong, but we need to get better at it. We need to cultivate that capacity. Why? Well, the key is that although we are rational, we also are animal. We have feelings and fears and desires all of which very much affect our ability to be guided rationally in our actions, right? So if you've ever been on a diet, right, you, you probably notice that you come up with all kinds of good reasons not to stick to your diet when you're near your favorite food, right? Um, and then you eat whatever it was, and you go home and you think, I didn't need to eat that, right? I shouldn't have done that. Um, and, and then that happens again and again and again, right? You'll, you'll tell yourself things like when you're in the, in the presence, right? Well, look, I, if I'm really going to be healthy, I have to let myself indulge a little, right? Or I, I need to take breaks sometimes, right? Um, our desires affect the way our reason perceives the world, right? The things we want affect the reasons that we give ourselves in acting. Um, and breaking a diet is just a completely innocuous example, right? We can convince ourselves that it's reasonable to stay in a bad relationship or cheat on our taxes or many, many, many other things, right? Um, what we want very often takes precedence over what we know we ought to do in the abstract. So our desires can skew our perception of the good of reason or even cause us to ignore what we know we ought to do. But reason and desire don't have to be at odds like that, right? Um, Aquinas, like Aristotle, held that reason has what he called political rule over the passions. Our passions are not rational, but they participate in reason. Reason can't completely control our passions, 
but it can convince and entreat and guide them. Right? In a disordered soul, the passions take control. But in a well-ordered soul, the passions let themselves be guided and influenced by the higher part. And here's where, if we can all think of examples where our own passions have distorted our perceptions and caused us to act against our better judgment, we also know people who don't struggle with their desires in that way, right? Some people aren't just healthy but seem to like being healthy, right? They don't want to eat cheeseburgers. They don't like them, right? Um, and we've all seen, um, we all know people who would not enjoy themselves if they drank too much, right? That's not their idea of having fun. Um, and we all know, we've all seen instances where people who have performed some great act of heroism say, look, I just, anybody would have done that. I didn't do anything. I just, I had to do that. Um, in those instances, what we see is a, a harmony of reason and desire, right? Um, most of us don't have that harmony, right? But it's clear from examples of other people that that harmony is possible. Okay. So it seems like if the pagan is to be genuinely virtuous, consistently recognizing and doing what the good of reason requires, he will be capable of cultivating the right order of reason and desire in his soul, which means he's going to be able to do what reason requires, not just once, but often enough that there, the passions come into harmony um, with the desires so that, he, that uh, the pagan acts this way habitually. Okay, and here's where Aquinas starts, uh, things start to get a little less optimistic for Aquinas, right? Because Aquinas thinks that the non-believer can make progress towards being that kind of person who has a harmony of reason and desire. Um, but he also thinks that original sin is going to keep that harmony from ever being perfect. Okay. So I'm going to talk about original sin for a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about how the difference that Christianity makes to this entire picture. Okay, so so far I've been painting a pretty optimistic picture. Our very human nature gives us the resources to pursue our fulfillment because it gives us the resources to recognize which acts are in accord with right reason and which acts are not. As we cultivate this ability, probably with the help of teachers, right, probably not on our own, we not only refine our ability to distinguish right from wrong, but we also train our passions, we also train our desires. But Aquinas is also a Christian, and one of the things he believes as a Christian is that our human nature is corrupted by original sin. This is clearly going to impact man's ability to pursue his fulfillment. Just how far it impacts it, though, will depend on what original sin corrupts. So if original sin so corrupted our nature that it removed everything good from it, Augustine would be right, right? Our, any ability to do act, to know or act in accord with the good would be gone. But Aquinas thinks that original sin only impairs our ability to act rightly. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details. I'm just going to stick to the highlights. In Aquinas' view, original sin doesn't change the fundamental structure of our nature. We don't lose the natural moral knowledge that orients us to the good of reason, and we don't lose reason, 
What happens is that we become much more prone, thanks to original sin, to disordered acts, right? It becomes much harder for us um, to make ourselves do what we know we should do and much harder for us to reason well about what we ought to do. Thanks to original sin, we are disposed to prefer our own good to the good of reason. And we're predisposed, thanks to original sin, to desire things we shouldn't desire, like wealth and power and fame. Because original sin disposes us to desire these things inordinately, it's that much harder to do the things we ought. So because original sin makes being virtuous, especially doing virtuous acts with any kind of consistency, a lot harder. Right? Because there's always that disorder creeping in, right? There's always that temptation to pride, right? Or to things that, or to make things our end that we shouldn't make our end. Um, so, on a, on a Aquinas's view, the pagan can make, can do good actions, can make significant progress towards being the kind of person who consistently does good actions, but he's not going to be perfect, right? Aristotle thought that people could be perfectly virtuous. Aquinas doesn't, right? There's always going to be that disorder there. Okay, but now I'm going to talk about how Christianity changes everything in Aquinas' picture. So far, I've argued that Aquinas sees a link between human goodness and human nature, and I've given an account of what that goodness would consist in. I've also indicated that Aquinas thinks original sin impairs one's ability to achieve the goodness that corresponds to the fulfillment of one's human nature. But although Aquinas believes that we pursue a genuine good when we pursue the fulfillment of our human nature, and although he believes that even those suffering from the effects of original sin can make progress to the fulfillment of their rational human nature, he still thinks Christian perfection is something entirely different. Okay? Meaning that even those who have made progress in cultivating moral goodness um, are st- still don't, for Aquinas, have the kind of goodness that gets you into heaven. Okay? Now, I want to talk about why he thinks that's the case. Um, Augustine distinguishes two different kinds of gifts that God gives us. He says, what we receive in order to be is one thing. But what we receive in order to be holy is another. And this is what people kind of refer to as the twofold gift. Okay? Um, August, Aquinas, like Augustine, believes that man's very creation is a gift from God. Right? God gives us a great gift by giving us our rational human nature. We act well when we act in ways that fulfill it. Aristotle and Plato may have known nothing of the Judeo-Christian God, but when they cultivated the right relationship between reason and desire in their souls, they were making good use of their rational human nature. But the key point to understand is that making good use of your rational human nature does not, on the Christian view, make you deserving of heaven. Right. So Dante, in his, uh, in his Inferno, Right, he's and many many of you know. If you don't, right, it's a, it's a description of hell, right, and it's all the layers of hell. 
The deeper into hell you go, the worse you are. The closer to hell's surface, the better you are, right? And Dante puts Plato and Aristotle, right, the pagan philosophers of virtue, in the outermost circle of hell, right? Which is, it's not even really hell at all. It's just kind of, but it's also not heaven, right? And he, he describes Plato and Aristotle as standing on the outermost circle of hell, looking off towards heaven, right? And he says that they live on in desire, but without hope, right? There's, there's a higher happiness to be had that fulfilling our rational human nature doesn't get us, right? Um, And that's kind of an image of the difference between the Christian version of happiness and the Christian version of fulfillment and um, the Aristotelian or the so-called uh, pagan version of fulfillment, right? Um, it's clear that Dante, like Aquinas, believes that one cannot rightly love God without God's saving grace. And the question of what grace does is important. In Aquinas' view, grace does not destroy or replace, but perfects our rational human nature. Just how Aquinas thinks grace perfects nature is important. He does not think that grace merely enables us to do better what our created human nature already does. Right? So he doesn't think that grace just um, takes away original sin right, and kind of makes our created nature back to what it was before original sin. Aquinas believes that God's grace perfects and transforms our, what our very fulfillment is, and even the very principles that order us to it. I noted that Aquinas thinks we have the ability to pursue the good of reason because we all have a kind of vague knowledge of what that good is, right? We possess this knowledge insofar as we naturally know certain general orienting moral principles, like good is to be done and evil is avoided, and we desire them, right? In Aquinas' view, a nature transformed by God's saving grace is not just ordered to the good of reason. It's ordered to participation in the divine life, right? Um, it's ordered to doing the kinds of things the adopted son or daughter of God would do, not just to acting in ways that exhibit the excellence of reason. He, in his view, a, a, a nature transformed by God's grace is ordered to participation in the divine life in the same way our natural moral principles order us to the good of reason. Faith, hope, and love give us an inchoate knowledge of the goal of Christian life, heavenly beatitude, just as our natural principles point us to the good of reason. To rightly love God, then, is to be united to him in faith, hope, and love, which give us a, a kind of imperfect vision of what uh, life with God is like. And even faith, hope, and love, Aquinas thinks aren't sufficient, right? We have to act in a manner befitting that participation, and he thinks we're, to do that, we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? We need uh, the gifts. We need um, divinely given virtues. And that's more than I can go into here, right? Um, 
but I'm going to return to Leonidas to try and bring all of this together. Leonidas could recognize all by himself, just because he was a human being, that he should die to save Greece from the Persian hordes. All by himself, he could recognize that that was a good thing to do. All by himself, he could cultivate the traits that enabled him to do that. But in Aquinas' view, recognizing whether martyrdom is required of me, or that I should be a martyr, or endure martyrdom, is not something you recognize or do on your own, right? You need God's help and the, and the appropriate relationship with God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to do those kinds of actions. So there's much more that could be said here, but the important point is that Aquinas has not at all abandoned the idea that there is a connection between a thing's good and its nature. Aquinas's view is that grace transforms and perfects what we are and thus transforms and perfects our good. Without grace, the best we can hope for is the fulfillment of the nature God gave us in creation. This is a genuine kind of fulfillment, and attaining it to the degree we can is a genuine good. But God's grace, without destroying our rational human nature, perfects and elevates it. And a nature perfected by God's grace is is fulfilled by something far different. Right, by participation in the divine life. The last thing that I am going to say, and maybe in some ways the most important thing, it has to do with that claim that I mentioned, right? Dante's claim that Plato and Aristotle live on in desire, without, but without hope. The cultivation of natural virtue in Aquinas' eyes is a genuine good, and it produces a genuine kind of happiness. But the happiness of the person who cultivates natural virtue will never be complete. Far to the contrary, Aquinas thinks that the more we order ourselves to the good of reason, the more we perfect the gift given in our creation, the more we will become aware that the good of reason cannot fully satisfy our desire, and the more we will desire a completion that we are powerless to achieve on our own. In fact, Aquinas says that the cultivation of natural virtue is itself a preparation for grace. The more we try to bring ourselves to become such that we act in accord with the good of reason, the more we prepare ourselves for conversion, right, for the Christian faith. So at the end of the day, Aquinas thinks that pagans can cultivate a genuine kind of virtue. He just doesn't think that pagans can cultivate the kind of virtue that the blessed in heaven possess. To some, this might seem unfair. Why should genuinely good people be excluded from heaven? Isn't a God that keeps good people out of heaven unjust? The answer is that in Aquinas' view, and indeed on the Christian view, heaven is not something anyone deserves. It, like the very gift of our creation, is a gift that God gives out of his superabundant goodness. What Aquinas offers us in his middle ground is itself a fuller explanation of this. The good of natural virtue is a genuine good because it is a fulfillment of the gift God gives us in creation. But no amount of natural fulfillment can ever make us worthy of the highest happiness or the highest virtue. Such a gift, should we receive it, is still, is simply a still further and far greater gift from God. That's all I've got. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. 
The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.